Hi, welcome to the Let's Go Eat Show. I'm Bill Allred, and when I first met this uh, woman we're going to talk to today, um, she was covered from head to toe. Uh, she's uh, just uh, in black, uh, black, uh, uh, black uh, veil, black, long, black flowing dress, uh, covered from head to toe. All I could see is her hands, her feet, and her eyes. And uh, she was hula hooping in a dark room with a light up hula hoop. And it was strangely beautiful and even a little bit erotic, even though she was covered from head to toe. I can't explain it. Uh, her name is Balkis Al-Rashad. She is a Saudi artist and designer. She was born in Saudi Arabia, raised in Beirut, and uh, she's a, a remarkable woman. She's here in Utah, or has been here in Utah, uh, as a guest artist at Yumoka, the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. Uh, I think you'll find her as fascinating as I did. She is terrific. She's all articulate, uh, and she is a, a great artist. And you should go see the um, exhibit at uh, Yumoka. She's one of several Saudi artists featured there uh, at the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art. Um, so here it is, my talk with Balkis Al-Rashad. Do, uh, do you know how long you're going to be here yet? Um, I just checked my ticket today. I wanted to postpone, but um, it might not be a possibility. So I need to call and make some calls and just figure this out. So we'll see, because I'm so tired to even travel. I'm like, I can't even be bothered to pack. So we'll see. I might be homeless and like miss my flight, and then you'll see me in the shelter. <laughs> no, so we, we can find a place for you to stay. Thank I'm you. <laughs> I've been offered so many homes, believe me. I bet. I bet there are a lot of people who you've met since you've come to Salt Lake who would, who would just be thrilled if you decided, you know... I'm just going to stay in Salt Lake City. And, That's so true. And travel America. And yeah. Honestly, people have been really encouraging of that. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. So here we go. Uh, uh, talking with, uh, we're at the uh, Utah Museum of Contempor Contemporary Art, UMOCA. And uh, Christian Anderson, the um, uh, director of the museum, is with us. And uh, we've had Christian on the show before. And mm -hmm. Good morning. Thanks for having me uh, back. Nice to have you here. And uh, we also have one of the artists in residence or one of the artists in this show, and she is the artist in residence at Yamoka. Uh, her name is Balkis Al-Rashid, and uh, the show is called Cities of Conviction. And it's, uh, are, now, are all of the artists uh, Christian from Saudi? Um, all but one of them, I believe, is from Saudi. And um, the other one is from New Jersey. Or but <laughs> she's, she's, uh, she's been living in Saudi for a while. I think she was from Palestine. Uh, and uh, this is a uh, uh, exhibit that will run through January, isn't it? Yep, first week of January. Uh, here at the uh, Utah Museum of Contemporary Art, Yumoka. And so if you don't know where that is, by the way, it's uh, it's kind of between uh, Abravanel Hall and um, the uh, Salt Palace. Yep. It all seems like one big building, though, is it? Yeah, we, I mean, there's 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 ways to get between all of the buildings. Yeah, we're basically on South Temple and West Temple. I would say if you walk out of the Nordstrom at City Creek and you walk across the street, you'd walk right into our front door. Yeah, and two-hour free parking. Yep, two-hour free parking at at uh, City Creek. Yeah, thank thanks to uh, thanks to our friends at the church. Yeah. Uh, now, Balkis, uh, I've met. Uh, you were on my radio show for a few minutes yes, uh, uh, this past 
week, and, or last week, I guess it was, and uh, it was a pleasure to meet you, and to, now I've come to the museum to see uh, exactly what your art is and what you do, and uh, uh, it's, it's uh, phenomenal. So Thank you. I'm so happy that you made it here, and thank you for having me on your show, too. It's uh, my pleasure. Now, let's just start a little bit uh, history of, of, of you. Uh, you're uh, uh, an artist. Uh, do, you, do you work in all mediums, or do you? It's mostly conceptual and construction. And um, see, I'm, I, cons- I consider myself as a young artist still, so I'm very like I'm I'm at my infancy, and I'm still very playful with my mediums and my creative direction. But I feel like there's a consistency in in my work when it comes to the themes uh, and uh, what they, um, like there are con- like concepts like the contrast is always very evident in my work and also like the, the, the sense of playfulness and uh, I feel like maybe that's what's bringing all my work together but in, in, in general, like yeah, I like to be very playful with my medium so sometimes I do performances and other times I work on videos and or collages or even huge art installations like the one that I did uh, in Yomoka. So I feel, uh, yeah, I just keep it really playful. Mm-hmm. Where did, so you started out uh, uh, as a, you studied graphic design, right? Correct. Um, and uh, you, uh, you, you live in Saudi now and you're of Saudi heritage. Yes. But you didn't, were you, were you born in Saudi Arabia? I'll tell you a little bit about my background. Yeah. So I was uh, born in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, my parents are both from there um, and then my, my parents decided to move the whole family to Lebanon when I was around eight or nine um, and I, I went to uh, an American school in, in, uh, in Lebanon and then I went on to graduate and like I graduate graduate high school and I uh, uh, went to the American University of Beirut which is known to be like the Harvard of uh, of universities in the Middle East at least. Oh really? Yes. Uh, very prestigious then. Very prestigious, very tough as well. Like mm-hmm. it only takes like the best of the best. So it was it was a really tough uh, university to be in and even the program that I chose which is uh, graphic design um, it was also a really intensive program. So I really benefited from it. It really shaped the person that I am today. Um, I think a, a lot of people might not know uh, about the American University at, in Beirut, and and I didn't realize you you alluded to the fact that you went to American high schools yeah, also. Like, yeah, it was Lebanon. an American system basically, so it was a Catholic school as well. Like my parents really did a number on me, so mm-hmm. like they took me from Saudi Arabia and they put me in a Catholic school with an American system, mm-hmm. and then. Yeah, no wonder I'm whatever I am. <laughs> well, I think they did a good thing because you seem pretty good to me, pretty great. Thank you. Uh, so, what do you uh, tell? Do you know much about how that all developed? That there's an American, such a strong American school system there, and then I know the American uh, University in Beirut is very well regarded, uh, not just in the in the Middle East, but but here as well. Right. Um, well, the the university is even older than Saudi Arabia itself, believe it or not. So really? yes. <laughs> it's a really old university. I can't even remember the history of it just because it's so long mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. Uh, like I should be shamed. Like the the university will probably shame me for that because like they take these th- 
things really um, did you have a football t- did you have a football team did you have a yeah of course <laughs> of course I, w- I just was not part of th- that you know I was in my little des- uh, like the architecture and design school so you were, you were like, an artist not a jock uh, yes mm-hmm. although in, in high school I was actually in the basketball team in the soccer team and I was very active and like uh, all over the place mm-hmm. kind of kid mm-hmm. until I started growing my nails and like caring about that <laughs> do a lot of Americans go to that school or is it mostly people from the Middle East um no, it's mostly people from the Middle East. You find a lot of foreigners that are coming there just to study um, probably languages. Like, that's a really big thing. Uh, and you find a, a lot of Americans, even in schools. Like, when I, when um, in my high school, I had um, a few Americans as well. Um, but it's mostly a university that caters to the Middle East in general mm-hmm. uh, and the world. Uh, I mean, uh, in the Middle East in particular and the world in general, um, you find a lot of people coming from Jordan, from uh, Saudi, from Kuwait, so uh, of course also the Lebanese. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there are places in the Middle East that are uh, more uh, tolerant or um, uh, have embraced Western culture a little bit more than others, right? Is right. That, so Lebanon, I mean, even though God knows we've had troubles, we've had our troubles with Lebanon and you know, and Hillary Clinton and Benghazi and, uh, you know, and Gaddafi and all of that, uh, is Lebanon has always kind of traditionally been a little more, I don't know if the right word is tolerant or... Um, yes, uh, to an extent. I mean, when I moved to Lebanon, it was a really also interesting time just because it was right after the civil war ended. Uh, so it was like a 25-year civil war that really destroyed the infrastructure of the of the country, both socially and even in the built environment. These were people who were opposed to Qaddafi. Uh, um, no. Oh, that, that, that's Libya. L- oh, Libya. Yeah. That's what I'm... Benghazi, Libya, Libya, Lebanon. Yeah. Lebanon. Yeah. Lebanon. So yeah. Lebanon is between now Syria and... Thanks, Christian. I'm yeah. No, I was getting to that. So yeah. like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, let me use it. So, um, uh, yeah, Lebanon is like uh, in the borders of Syria, um, Israel, uh, and uh, I feel like it's in a really interesting, uh, like geographically, it's a very small country, but it's in a very interesting uh, geography. Mm-hmm. So, like, um, so like the civil war was actually between the Muslims and the Christians, which is really interesting. Me coming from Saudi Arabia, the land of Islam, mm-hmm. and then I, I honestly did not know that there is any other religion besides Islam when I moved there, and like that's another story. So there's but a strong Christian um, in, of course, and because Beirut it was, was a, a French colony. So, uh, like, yeah. And Beirut was a, was a really a cosmopolitan uh, yes. city, and but the 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 civil war did a pretty bad number on of the course. city. Of course, I mean, yeah, before the war, like it, like Lebanon was known to be like the Paris of the mm-hmm. Middle East, uh, and it was very tolerant and very democratic. And I think that's something that Lebanon still celebrates, but uh, maybe the the days of glory really like was were overshadowed by the war and like the tension and this. Schism in the between the different um, uh, like political parties mm-hmm. that are really usually backed up by religious uh, yeah. faith. So like, yeah, I think that showed showed the true truth of what was happening in Lebanon, and I feel like it's still recovering till this day and trying to figure out what is their national identity. So was it, you haven't you haven't been there. Uh, you were, you finished your schooling 
10 years ago? Did I, did I understand almost. that right? I graduated yeah. 2008, mm. so almost 10 mm. years so ago. When, and when, so when you were there, it was calm, re- relatively calm and a, a nice Not place? Not at all, no, actually. No? Um, I was <clears throat> so I graduated 2008, so, and uh, there was a, a, a big war during the summer of 2006 between Israel and Lebanon. And I feel like I'm always like a... I feel like I'm a child of war, but like not in a, in the most aggressive of ways. I mean, I've witnessed a lot of wars. One, the Gulf uh, War in uh, in Saudi between Saudi and Iraq and Kuwait, of course, and then in Lebanon, I witnessed several uh, wars mm. as well. That that being one of, I think, the major one of them, just because I witnessed it like mm-hmm. in a very surreal way. So. Um, no, I think that the security at that, lab, at that time in Lebanon was really questionable and were very compromised. A lot of politicians were assassinated on sometimes a weekly basis. How is it now? Do you know? How is it now? Um, I honestly have disconnected a little, for, a little bit from it just because I've been just busy traveling and working. So I'm not really as in touch. Of course, I have a lot of friends there, friends from childhood and everything. But Lebanon is Lebanon. Like, people are resilient. So, like, they would probably have a, a war going on somewhere. And it's a really small country. And then people would be partying in the other, uh, like, neighboring something. You know, Two like, in the north. Over, yeah. Exactly. So, like, uh, like this... They learned. I think they're. Um, they learned that life is too short, and they just need to survive and live. If I, you know, by the way, let me just say, if I ask you a question that you uh, feel uncomfortable answering for for whatever reason, mm-hmm. uh, you, you have different. Um, you have sort of different standards than I do, uh, and you uh, also probably have. Uh, other constraints that I'm not aware of. So if if I ask you anything that you don't want to talk about, just say I'd really rather not talk Thank about you. that. And now I'm going to ask you this: <laughs> uh, what, uh, if if that was a, if it sounds like it was a place that was in a bit of turmoil, why did your parents decide to move their family there from some place that's pretty stable? Um, I think. My dad really wanted us to be exposed. One, he re- really want, wanted us to go to London at some point and to move there. But then I feel like he wanted to stay in an Arab country just to maintain the values. But I think he was completely wrong uh, <laughs> in his decision. But, like, like he, he didn't know better. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, I think it was majorly because he wanted us to be cultured and exposed and like have a different kind of education that maybe we were we will we would have not had uh, in Saudi Arabia and I feel like Saudi Arabia at that time also was going through a really interesting time with the um, the Sahwa which is called the religious awakening at the 80s so it was right after the Iranian Revolution and several uh, um, incidents that happened within Saudi Arabia that like there was this wave of uh, religious, what we call religious awakening. So people realized that we need to reform religiously. It became, it became a more, uh, the government became more influenced by religion. Absolutely. Or it's like even on a social level, it became very evident. Mm. And I feel like my parents did not want us to be subjected to that and maybe to have a different perspective uh, in mm. a way. So mm. I think that is honestly are the they, reason. Are they professional people, your your parents? My dad was a journalist mm. and my mother is a business woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you uh, uh, let's talk about your just briefly your schooling and then we'll move on to okay. uh, why uh, what is it about you do you know were you, have you always been artistically inclined um, are anybody else in your family in the arts or? 
I mean, my dad is a journalist and is a, a writer, so that, I guess, makes puts him in that category. But I am the black sheep in the family, so everyone is very, like, business-oriented and into, like, making money and, like, start making, like, mm-hmm. big businesses and whatnot. But then I feel like, yeah, I'm definitely different uh, that way. And I feel like the first time I... Uh, knew that I had artistic inclinations was when I was around three years old and I used to draw on like the our living room wall which made my mom nuts of course mm-hmm. uh, but the true time I really realized like I, I am I might be a, 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 like an artist like I or, or gifted with that have mm-hmm. or have this gift is when I was around nine and I remember I was really frustrated at one of my brothers and we just moved to from Saudi to Lebanon and I remember remember feeling just so frustrated and angry and I didn't feel like I belonged to the family so I went and I took the family album and I uh, took out the picture the group pictures that I was in mm-hmm. and I ripped all my little like faces off the page of the photographs mm. Mm. and just collected them so carefully and of course my mom you can imagine her reaction the family heirloom pictures yeah because I, I i changed the narrative forever so they were trying to construct this like beautiful like image of what mm-hmm. this family is all about and i feel like i kind of my act of vandalism kind of even though it was very expressive and true to me and authentic to what i was feeling i feel like it changed the the narrative forever and it's so funny after that like she scotch taped the the, the <laughs> which is another uh, a very expressive uh, um uh, expression as well just because she's trying to put things together again. bring me those faces back oh, bring yes. those faces back <laughs> i want those faces right now where Exactly, exactly. And uh, I feel like we still look at these pictures sometimes and we come across them and we like, we mourn the, the truth in silence, like my act of vandalism. Well, it's still, I mean, it's, it's, it's really amazing, though, because looking at them the way they are now with the now yellowed scotch tape on right. the faces and stuff, it tells a story. It still tells a story. Absolutely. That, 20 years later, it's, oh it's, it's very impactful and it's saying the, a different story. And it's like, yeah, that's why, why I feel like that was really my, tr- my first true uh, artwork. Uh, so you, you go to uh, the uh, university in Beirut and you study graphic design. Mm-hmm. Um, are you, what, what did you, did you have any idea that you wanted to do something specific with that in terms of uh, because most, a lot of times people go into graphic design and it's because they feel that there's a, they, they're artistically inclined, but they also feel that there's a commercial application for that. For and, sure. And did you want to do that or what? Well, um, when I first got into the American University of Beirut, I went into as a, like in, like as a medicine student. That's what mm-hmm. I wanted to do. And then I realized quickly that, oh, my God, this is not the lifestyle that I want. And this is, no, mm-hmm. like something was really off. And it just didn't feel well, a good right for me. And then I just, from the first semester, I decided that's not going to be my path. Um, and I remember I applied to um, for fashion design and sent to Central St. Martins in London. And I had my first interview. And I went to my dad. I'm like, Dad, can, like... I have an interview in London for uh, for for this program, and he's like, "Sit your 
you know, down. <laughs> and uh, put, put your put your bottom on the chair. Exactly. <laughs> and you're not going anywhere. Basically, he wanted me to graduate from uh, from AUB and then mm-hmm. just do whatever I want uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I literally opened the catalog and I'm like, what is the closest thing to fashion design? And it was graphic, but I think it was like a fortunate accident for me because I didn't really intend to go into that but once I was there I feel like um, maybe if it wasn't even on a conscious level I was meant to be in that program Um, like some like like my angels yeah yeah yeah, like my angels really like worked their magic and they're like okay you you come here you Mm -hmm. do this so um, and I was really good at it as well I realized um, I had a natural um, um, like feel to everything and I, I saw that and even how my uh, professors and teachers appreciated my work even though they were always uh, very annoyed at my process <laughs> just because my process was very artistic and very moody but um, like uh, as an artist would but like mm-hmm. not very designerish in a sense that it's I very yeah. structured and very clear so mm-hmm. um, but I was definitely appreciated for my talent and I feel like that made that that made me feel like I'm doing something right mm-hmm. So you work on uh, all your projects in school, and uh, uh, what was it, a four-year four program? Four-year four years program, yeah. and basically I was at, at school from 8 in the morning, and we finish our design courses at 6 p.m., and then we stay we overnight to finish basically our project. Mm-hmm. So it was four years of no sleep. So uh, so you think about, well, maybe I'll go into an advertising firm, or uh, never, never occurred to you to well, do that? Well, I did it. I had an interview one time. With an, with an advertising firm after like a few years uh, of me graduating and the guy who was interviewing me who, who was asking me why didn't you uh, apply to advertising agencies before I mean you're really good and you, you fit right here and I'm just like because I feel like advertising is evil <laughs> so I think I didn't get that job yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell <laughs> I was you, ad- the right fit. advertising <laughs> paid for my son's education here, and my son. <laughs> <laughs> well done, well done. <laughs> uh, so, so um, you, so you uh, pursue a career as an artist, which is not uh, necessarily a way you're going to make money. Uh, my parents made sure to tell me that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they did. Uh, don't you, something to fall back on is what they would say. Yeah. Maybe maybe you could teach. And well, still do art and, you know, that kind I of thing. I still do graphic design from time to time, but I'm very selective about, like, what kind of products. Well, you have a clothing line, too, don't you? I you? do. Um, I had actually, I started a company in 2011, a, a clothing company, a high-end clothing company mm-hmm. that I ended up selling my shares to, yeah. but I co-founded for sure, like, and it was a really exciting experience. Um very like uh, also the learning curve was like really high for me but now I do my own clothing line but it's like on a personal level like I'm not uh, taking it at this point at least I'm not I don't want to take it to that level where it's like something very commercial or whatever but I'm always I call myself a hustler so I'm always like doing things all the time uh, and I do it them for the really the need to be just creative and to express myself, not to make money necessarily, mm-hmm. which, again, doesn't make my family really happy. <laughs> yeah, well. But I, the freelancing definitely pays the bills. So um, I, I'm still a graphic designer at the end of the day, so I still use that 
kind of my sets, my skills to generate money. Let's uh, let's talk about your uh, some of your art projects, and then we'll talk with uh, Christian about all the other artists that are here as well. Uh, or you know some of the some of them are, who are here at Umoka mm-hmm. uh, for the Cities of Conviction um, art exhibit here at Umoka, which is funded in part by a Saudi king or a, a government or f- official of some sort. Or well, Christian, you probably sure it's funded by Ethra, which uh, was formed up to very recently the called the King Abdulaziz Center for World Culture. Um, it is a cultural initiative uh, by. a corporation called Aramco, which uh, used to be the Arab American Oil Company, uh, yeah. largest company in the world, uh, coincidentally. Um, I think Saudi Arabia, um, and especially the new crown prince, what is the new crown prince's name? Hamad bin Salman. Hamad uh, bin Salman. Hamad bin Salman. Hamad bin Salman. Are making a concerted effort to divest Saudi Arabia's economy. Um, I think that they realize mm. that they've been over leveraged on petrochemical, and so they're really trying to do uh, information and culture economy. And so this is sort of one of their first forays into a program that they're calling Saudi 2030. That's so. pretty. I mean, that's uh, Umoka is one of the first uh, beneficiaries of that. Yep, there uh, there are ten total cities that are partaking in this cultural exchange. Um, so we. Um, we're in partnership with Ithra, um, and so we curated the exhibition, but we got a lot of help from them in terms of suggestions and logistics and um, and helping us sort of bridge to different cultures. Mm-hmm. And that's one of their missions. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, and then uh, Balkis here is here, and she's done a, a, a an installation here at the exhibit, which we'll talk about in a second, but... Uh, there And if, by the way, if you're interested in uh, Balkis's work, she has a website. Yeah, you don't mind if I give that no, out? No, no, not at all. Uh, dot com, and we'll post that on, uh, you know, so that people can click through to it. But B A L Q I S A L R A S H E D dot com. Examples of uh, your art um, on here. Now, so the first one, the first, I mean, I sort of scanned through them, but the one that really, really caught my eye a lot was called Once We Fell from the Sky and Landed in Babel. And apparently you did this in 2015, yes. is that right? Yes. Uh, and where where did you do it? I did it in uh, a town uh, in a city called Sharjah, it's in the Emirates, the United States, uh, the United Emirates. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and um I feel like the title alone of this piece is like an artwork, <laughs> just because of how it's, long well, it is. Well, it's lovely. I mean, it's poetic. It's yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it speaks a lot about, like, the structure that I created there and, like, the process of it. But it was really, it was also in our residency. And um, uh, most of my the findings were were based on the research that I did in the in the context. So, um, so the, by, by saying it's an, a residency, uh, some entity, the government of uh, U- of United Arab Emirates, Sharjah Art Foundation, oh. actually, okay. which is paid like for you to yes, invited me to be part of the, this art residency. And Sharjah Art Foundation is a very like respectable, well known um, art foundation, and not only regionally but also even on a uh, international level. So uh, I was really honored and grateful to be part of this program. Um, and I was like, I, I was really like taking care of in the sense like I was I had like the mentor 
followers and the and the like this huge team to help me create this in, like insane insane public artwork. It's pretty it's it's pretty big. Yes. Uh, I don't know what are the dimensions of it. Uh, it was around twenty five. Oh, I do it. I do things in meters and. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Twenty five meters is about eighty feet. Okay, so it's it's 25 by 20 almost. Yeah, so 80 by uh, 65. Uh, Here, I'll show you, Dylan. This is an example of what... Let me show you the first one. Uh, you should go to the website and really look at this piece. Uh, and it's 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 sad in a way, but I guess that's. I mean, it's not still there. Is no, it? it's, it's not. It's so ephemeral. It's I know, but that is, I think, part of like the the concept of this piece. It was all about like my first question was, why do we work? Like, what what is the reason for labor? What is the reason for us creating all these rituals? Uh, whether religious or not, like it's because we want to, to have to make maybe give meanings and um, more power to our lives, and we do that through objects and through actions. And uh, because this was a very labor-intensive project, I feel like the 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 creation of the artwork was actually the for me that was the artwork because we were performing every day this ritual that and I used to ask the people who were working with me like why are you coming here every day and doing this besides getting a paycheck um, and they're like we don't know I mean it's art right uh, and I'm just like see I I'm the one I'm the agency that gave this a meaning so these are you these are just workers that you hired and most of them have they, they don't know art from a a, a plate of hummus. I mean, yeah, they know like they know the production of art because that's their job, but they don't know what art is and what how important it is. But after like the the artwork was was done, and I was surprised that I was able to create like a, a, a space that is uh, that has its own sacredness and power just because of this repetitiveness that was uh, through the act of labor. Let's uh, let's see if we can kind of describe. First of all, uh, Babel was a, a a location somewhere in the Middle East. Not was it close to this or right? No, actually, uh, the story behind this is that. Um, in, in Babylon, like they were trying to build a, 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 a the Tower of Babel, t- Tower in, of Babel yeah, mm-hmm. back in the day. So, and I, it's, it's a myth. It's a Christian myth, myth mostly, but it exists in all religions. Um, and basically, what happened is that it was after the flood of uh, the the. Um, the, the Noah's the Great Flood and uh, uh, the, uh, they cr- they basically invented this uh, this uh, brick this uh, this new invention mm-hmm. that like was gonna help them build a really a strong structure that will overcome everything so they decided to to build the tower uh, and it's w- it was one to basically exercise their power in a sense like oh we're such a powerful uh, uh, nation. Look at us. Yeah, look at us. It's like grandiosity in a sense, but then also they wanted to save themselves from a future flood in case that happens, and God saw that as an act of defiance and challenge, and he changed their languages, and they were not, like, they did not understand each other anymore, so they were babbling to each other, mm-hmm. so they could not unite to build the tower and they fell. That they failed. Yeah. And it explains why we have so many languages, all yeah, in one fell swoop. Pretty. Good job. Yeah, analogy. I mean, really, that's a, you know, isn't it? So, it's, it's pretty <laughs> astonishing that. Uh, yeah, I guess that's they use that as a story of the myth of how languages, different languages developed. But it's pretty astonishing that something is so enduring uh, that we still use that. I mean, that we use that word. 
to to mean kind of confusion and and a, and a incoherent speech is babbling and yeah from the Tower of Babel. And I feel like if in in the context of Sharjah art fund or, or Sharjah as a city, it was really interesting because uh, the city was really composed from really different um, uh, people from all different like uh, countries mm-hmm. from Iran from Pakistan from India from like literally everywhere and um, and I, I there's in something interesting how they come all together to as a melting pot to create the city and they're all they're all there to work they're all there to put in labor and they created this ritual of labor basically to survive but also to um, Kind of, uh, and that's that's a, I think the reason behind the, this artwork is that I was studying dichotomies and the dichotomies that we t- we t- we kind of create and the, the ones that existed in that context. And I feel like I created like a a common ground for everyone to be there, whether they're Muslim, Christian, from Iran, from mm. Saudi, from whoever. They all had a common place, which is that spiral that. So you built. Just, we we really got to try to describe this when we were talking about. <laughs> so there's there's this beautiful. It looks like Concrete. carpet. It yeah. looks like carpet. Yeah. Is it is it just fabric or it's it's, uh, it's basically sec- uh, secondhand uh, carpet uh, that I yes that I basically we cut like they look like tiles that's what I call them mm-hmm. fabric tiles yeah uh, and they were manually cut and manually pasted to create all this space but they were like small pieces really like of. T- 10 by 20, so that's mm-hmm. centimeters. Yeah, 10 sure. by 20 centimeters. <laughs> yeah. You can do this in your head, right? <laughs> centimeters? Uh, that's mm-hmm. two, four inches by, I guess it would be four by eight, give or take. Yeah, it's some, squares, yeah, something like that. So imagine, like, I don't know, I think I, we cut and pasted uh, 13,000 of those. Oh, Which is 13,000. Third, that means thirteen thousand. <laughs> yeah, just 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 in, doing that conversion yeah, for you. Yeah. That. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, you you. <laughs> um, we don't need conversion for that, but yeah. And I, in the center of the of that space, um, there is uh, a concrete spiral. Uh, if you care to know, it's made of five hundred and forty-two bricks. Which means <laughs> in uh, in America that would be five hundred and forty-two. And there are cinder blocks, right? Cinder blocks. Like those, uh, they look like cinder blocks. That's what we call. Yeah, them. we call them cinder blocks. I think uh, you call them uh, MBU's mo- uh, modular building units is sort of a go-to mm-hmm. for cinder blocks. But yeah, same thing. They're holes, uh, big yes, holes. Yes, exactly. Them. And I chose those as well because I wanted to create like an incense burner. So also, it was a really sensory experience. So you you uh, then you lit something? Did you was it yes. incense that you put in all? Yeah, of those frankincense to be specific, oh, because geez. a lot of the workers uh, and the shops in the souk or the market that was around this area were basically waking up every morning cleaning their shops and burning incense and when I asked them why they did that they said because it's going to bring good fortune and uh, like release all the evilness and the bad fortune Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so also that was also a part of a process of labor a ritual of labor Um, and uh, I wanted to incorporate that in that space Uh, and also it created a beautiful sensory experience but once you go into the spiral it kind of suffocates you at the same time so it draws you in but suffocates you because there's too much smoke. There's too much smoke, but it 
like yeah. Uh, it, how so? How long was the piece there, and did you, did you light incense in it every day? And so yeah, the plan was for me to like the opening ceremony. Of course, when I was still there, I was uh, it was almost like a ritual. So we were burning it with like so much intention and dedication into what we're doing. But um, eventually, because I think the the that uh, show lasted for around two months and a half. Mm-hmm. So can you imagine the amount of coal and and, and frankincense? that I would have bought for yeah, this yeah. to be lit every day. So we were choosing, like, a, we had a schedule, basically, for it to be done. Mm-hmm. Mostly on the weekends where people were there to uh, experience it. Do you have any idea how many people saw it, ultimately? Oh, my God, many, because it was, like, in a public space as well. So everyone who is even passing by can, like... Didn't, it was free to see it. You yes, just, yeah. of course, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's a it's a, just a really beautiful piece. Was that the first big major yes. piece you had done? Something of that scope? Uh, yeah, that was the first time. Especially when someone presents me this, the 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 space and the money to do something big, I usually <laughs> go big or go home. You know, so uh, uh, and I did what that. What a Western I, thing to say. I know, <laughs> and I kind of did that in Atiyumuka as well. Like, I mean, the space was not like like a public space, but still, like you. Go big or you go home. So I created these mm-hmm. huge panels that mm-hmm. maybe we'll talk about. Yeah, later. we'll talk about that in a second. Let's uh, talk to Christian now about the exhibit uh, here uh, all together, and then we'll focus, come back and, and finish up by focusing on that piece sure. and maybe a couple of other things. But uh, so these are uh, how many artists again? Uh, uh, 17. 17 artists represented, uh, all but one from Saudi. All but one from Saudi, yeah. And, and the one who wasn't born in Saudi has been living in Saudi for quite some time, so. Uh, now I, you know, it's I don't want to put you on the spot. But we don't want to. <laughs> if, if I don't want to answer something, okay. I'll be yeah, sure good. to let you know. Good, uh, because you, we can't describe every piece in the in the exhibit. Uh, there are many, but uh, talk about a couple that really you think are striking. Sure. Um, the first thing that you see when you enter the exhibition is a giant neon aerial antenna. Um, you know. I, you know, you grew up with aerial antennas on the top of houses. I yeah. grew up with them, and then they sort of faded out. We don't see the aerials anymore. Yeah. Um, the artist is Ahmed Mater. Um, he's one of the more well-known artists in this cer- sort of current crop of, of young Saudi contemporary artists. Um, it's probably about 39, 40 years old, if I had to guess. Um, also happens to be a doctor. But anyways, uh, he was growing up in Saudi Arabia, and as a child, um, Western media was banned, like Western television. And so in order to get TV signals, you had to go up at night uh, to your roof and hold up this aerial antenna, and then you'd get TV, and then you know by daytime, the antenna had to come back down. And so for him, a lot of it was sort of looking to the West for this enlightenment, whether it was soccer matches or whatever, BBC or whatever it was that they were getting. But really, you know, this this clandestine act of going out at night and the young kid having to hold it up so his family can watch television. And I think that... Um, the the quest for enlightenment and knowledge um, is something that you know having spent way too many years uh, in mm-hmm. school much more than I than I should have um, and something that still drives me in, in what we do at Umoka today um, and that there there people want to learn and they're hungry to know things that they that they don't um, and hopefully that's one of the goals that I would like to see coming out of this exhibition is that people learn something about Saudi Arabia a country that I think is um, mythologized quite a bit here. Um, yeah, I mean, probably. I, I think everybody has, uh, if you have any conception of it all, um, part of what part of your conception will be a misconception. Yeah, I, th- I think there's, I think there's sort of two prominent myths. One is the historic, like um, 
Scheherazade, Arabian Saudi, Nights, uh, you know, it's, uh, and uh, what is it, Lawrence of Arabia? Arabia. Yeah, it, which is a you know a, a taking a culture that we you know orientalized and and didn't accurately describe anyways, but then we froze it in time for a long time, like mm-hmm. it's this old mythological thing. So I think there's that when you say Saudi Arabia. Or there's this conception that it's all full of people that are digging for oil and then becoming terrorists. I mean, I think those are sort of the two things that we think about. Um, and and I don't think either of those are true. Certainly, there's a rich historical tradition um, that those mythologies draw on. Um, the Arabic culture, I mean, they saved a lot of Western knowledge. You know, when the library at Alexandria burned and when the Goths sacked Europe, it was the Arabic world that was keeping a lot of the learning and knowledge alive. And so we sort of re-inherited. Yeah. And I mean, mathematics is just, uh, you know, I mean, the numbers that we use here in America, those are called Arabic, Arabic numbers. Sure. They invented that, you know, they're... And, and it is an incredibly cosmopolitan country. I mean, Jeddah and Riyadh and Dammam and these cities, um, thanks to the oil wealth, they've been able to build tremendous infrastructure and amazing buildings, amazing architecture. Um, it's, you know, incredibly technologically, uh, Internet permeation is the highest per capita in the world. And it, when you're going through the streets of Jeddah, I, fortunately, I was able to go last year. I mean, you're going to see a Kentucky Fried Chicken. You're going to see Starbucks. You're going to see... Um, yeah, McDonald's. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of it, honestly, kind of looks like suburban Miami. I mean, I think that's, if you've ever been to suburban Miami and you were in Jeddah, you'd have a hard time to meet. Really? Mm-hmm. Aside from the fact that the signs are in Arabic. But even those are oftentimes in double languages. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot more commonality. So I hope a lot of that myth ends up getting dispelled. That was a long way to talk about Ahmed Mater's uh, well, antenna. But <laughs> so it brings up a question about, like, another piece in there. Uh, it was the piece that we, we went down and looked at, uh, walked through the exhibit, and uh, uh, there are these eyeballs, these big mechanical eyeballs. Yeah, the world is watching. Uh, it's called The World is Watching. I believe so. Mm. Well, that sort of puts a little different light on what we were sort of thinking about when uh, when we looked at that piece. But ta- you talk about sure. it from uh, the artist and... Um, so it's a it's a set of five uh, animatronic eyeballs. Um, there's a sensor, so when you walk up to the statue or the sculpture, it looks back at you and moves in relation to to where you are. Um, you know, like I was mentioning with Ahmed's work with the digital permeation in in Saudi Arabia, um, they are the number one social media users, number one YouTube users per capita. But um, there are certain things that aren't allowed in Saudi Arabia. Um, there are certain websites that you can't go to. Uh, there is, you know, there's no pornography in uh, kind of like Utah. That's it. Know. I'm out. Kind of like Utah. You know, there's uh, they have a thing against pornography. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, um, you know, there are there are firewalls and there are systems in place on their their ISPs, internet providers, which means that inherently to have those firewalls, they're monitoring what it is that you're doing. And I've talked to, uh, not this, this hasn't come up with Balkis, but with other uh, Saudi people that I've met, there is this general concern, if not acknowledgement, that you know everything from email to your Google searches is being monitored at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of analogies here. The NSA uh, data site, when the U.S. government was collecting all of that bulk data, is down in Bluffdale. I mean, that's what ten miles from here. Yeah. Um, so the epicenter of the U.S. government's uh, surveillance was was here as well. Yeah. I mean, no, let's not kid ourselves. We're being surveilled as well. I, I, it, as you mentioned, the first piece with the antenna, mm-hmm. antennas, antennae, whatever, and then the uh, the mechanical eyeballs and being watched and so forth. Um, it, 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 it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, the Saudi government? It's that that would s- in, in indicate that it, that's a little critical of the government 
Uh, and yet the government is um, funding this exhibit, and, and they're, sure. they're quite aware of what, what's in it, I'm sure. Um, yeah, well, it's, it, I don't fully understand the connections between Ithra, the, the King of Dulazia Center for World Culture, and, and the government. I mean, there are several layers of separation and plausible deniability, and, and Ithra is sort of the, the partners in this. Um, but I think that Saudi Arabia is realizing that it needs to it needs to open up and diversify, and tourism is one of the good ways to do it. Um, you already have millions of people coming every year for the Hajj, um, which is the religious pilgrimage to Mecca that uh, all people of the Muslim faith are supposed to take at least once in their lifetime if they can do it. Um, and so you're already dealing with a pilgrimage economy, and I think they're realizing that since the airports and the infrastructure is being built to support that anyways, that opening up to a certain extent um, for general tourism um, is a good thing. It can do nothing but help their economy. But at the same time, speaking of the religious enlightenment, um, back starting basically in 1979 in Saudi Arabia after the uh, hostage-taking at the Grand Mosque, um, you know, you had a pu- you had a push to a religious right side, and in order, if you're going to be, this might sound a little bit like Utah. Uh, if you're going to be bringing in um, tourists, you have to tackle things like liquor laws. You have to tackle things like clothing laws. Sure. You have to tackle things like when are restaurants and do do we allow opening. Westerners to drink? Exactly, come here. absolutely. Yeah. And so those are issues that I think that they're going to have to tackle over the next five to ten years, and I think that they're acknowledging that, but it's it's a slow process. I mean, anytime sure. you're, you you grant a particular freedom, there's uh, the law of unintended consequences, which then pushes the pendulum back. It's, so it's sort of two steps forward, a step and a half back, three steps forward, two steps back, three steps back, five steps forward. And But I think that there is a conscious effort, uh, at least in the leadership, to, to figure it out. Um, the uh, exhibit at Yamoka, Cities of Conviction, um, uh, you, the two pieces you mentioned uh, have a, uh, a, a, a political uh, a political side to them. Um, they're, they're a commentary, a political commentary. And are there uh, some others that do as well in the exhibit? Yeah, I think because uh, not all of them do. Not all of them and, do. And I'll talk about Balkis in a second. Sure. We're really not political per se. Well, maybe a little, <laughs> but. But cultural, very cultural oriented. I, I think uh, almost anything can be appropriated to be made political, yep. uh, although I don't necessarily know that that's the intention of some of the works. I think that there are some uh, that are a little bit more spiritual, I would say. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Rashid uh, Shashi, Shashai, um, you know, his work is, is a lot more spiritual. Um, the is he the one who did the big... Uh, panel with the, the strainers? Correct. Right. Yeah, it sort of looks like stained glass windows, but when you get close, you realize that they're plastic strainers. Beautiful. Uh, um, he also did the LED light piece that's um, Stay to the Straight Path. That there's a, that's not the right title. but um, And then he also did the the rug that sort of cut up to kind oh, of look yeah. like a jelly roll. Mm-hmm. And so the two, the, the jelly roll one's a little bit different, but the uh, the one that looks like stained glass and the LED piece are, are a lot more based on, on concepts of, of faith. Spiritual, spiritual spirituality, yeah. getting into heaven and all yeah. of that. Whereas the rug piece is a lot more about um, how a lot of people try to consume a culture like it's a dessert. Like you can just take these bite-sized, you know, oh. you can just, yeah. we simplify things down until they're so bite-sized and sweet that it's not really substantive at all, but it's just kind of this saccharine idea of how we how we treat Oh, these cultures. wonderful rugs that you can get over there in Afghanistan. Exactly. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I don't, I don't care who made them or who, what this, what the real labor and the blood yeah. and the, uh, uh, that went into them. Correct. I can just go buy them. Exactly. Yeah. That's so. really... So, uh, Balkis, your piece, uh, 
And uh, is there uh, any, how did you, it's, you know, maybe you can't answer this, how did you get to be the artist in residence, the one who gets to kind of hang um, out and, you know? Because of some really supportive and great people at Teomoka who believed in me, I think, I believe that's the reason why I was here. Um, yeah, credit, um, it's too bad that Jared Stephenson, who's our curator of exhibitions, couldn't join us today. Um, you know, I get to be here because um, I like talking on mic. You know, I've never met a microphone that I don't <laughs> like, and, and Jared has a little bit more stage fright. Um, but he, the vision of this exhibition, in terms of how it's laid out and the artwork that's selected, are really, are really his more, much more so than they are mine. And when we were looking through um, artists from Saudi Arabia, um, you know. Belkis immediately caught Jared's eye, and then he came to show me, and I'm like, "Yeah, this would be her work would be amazing." Um, whether you know it's the uh, the work of Babel or the hula hooping, or there was just a, a sensibility and, and depth in what she was doing. Um, I have to. We also wanted to particularly um, put an emphasis on giving women artists an opportunity. Um, starting last year, um, it's sort of become part of our curatorial mission that when at all possible we want to find gender parity in all of the exhibitions that we do not just with this exhibition and so we really want to sort of make sure that um, it's not something we're giving lip service to but something that we continually strive to go forward in all of the, our programmatic practice um, so yeah are, are women uh, in Saudi Arabia in Saudi are, are women uh, there are there very many women artists female artists um, um there are, uh, but I mean, between what traditional art is, which is like the painting the nice pictures of the horses and the dunes or whatever, if that you like, if you would consider that art as well, like or in contemporary art, then yes, like, uh, but I, I don't think so. I feel like when it comes to contemporary art in specific, I feel like it is really at a level of infancy for everybody, and it's like a growing. Um, um, field and many people are joining it but maybe not surviving in it and I feel like now it's all about like who's going to survive in in this uh, new kind of uh, movement uh, it is still a very male dominated uh, movement I have to say mm -hmm. but the woman the woman the very few impressive women artists that are in, in there are um really shining and growing quicker than ever, and I'm very proud of all of them. Well, you can't, but you can't drive yourself to get our supplies. Not really. <laughs> I have to send my driver or go with the driver. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so if you if you don't know, and I, but uh, it, it's against the law for women to drive in Saudi Arabia, although there, there have been some women who've done defied it. Defied that, yeah. Defied it and, yes. and uh, made an attempt to do it, and... I, I'm betting you will see that change pretty soon. Yeah, and I feel like it's really a, a, a social and cultural thing rather than anything. Um, I, I believe that the government really would want, would love for uh, things to progress, but um, maybe the holdup is more on a cultural level mm -hmm. and a social level. And I think there, like I think that's also why art is very important and this kind of exposure for a Saudi women and. Yomoka doing an art residency for on her own for a month and a half is something that maybe can be seen as something regular to some or uh, maybe something that is not of any significance. But I feel like this is important to kind of shift the mentality of uh, uh, like some cultural uh, mentalities in Saudi Arabia. I mean, we deal with that. And we'll talk about your piece, but we deal with exactly the same thing here in terms of uh, uh, the the religious entities 
influencing the government entities, and there are plenty of people probably in the, in the legislature who bemoan that and say, you know, we've really got to move ahead, but we can't quite do that because the religious entity it does not want that to happen just yet. Sure. Well, I believe, and maybe I'll speak to, to Utah to slightly insulate uh, myself from the Saudi side of this, but I mean, I think that there, when in doubt, uh, economics will triumph, and I think that you have entire highly educated, talented labor force that is untapped, and by that labor force being untapped, you also have people that can be consumers of products, whether it's cars, televisions, or whatever it happens to be that's also untapped. So I think when any economy, and especially one that's trying to wean itself off of a dependence from a particular natural resource uh, and really wants to diversify, they're going to need to open up their labor market, which means they are going to need to open up some of those regulations just for the smooth transaction of money. So that sounds a little cynical, but well, when it doubt, I mean, follow the money. But you know, there was a uh, there's an uh, editorial in the Tribune today, and it's that Wallet Hub did a study, you know, how, how are women in, in the United States... Uh, how are they represented? And Utah comes in dead last, last. In, in many, many categories, the categories of how much money they earn, right, sure. representation on uh, gov- governmental uh, entities, uh, and, and yet 60-some-odd percent of the workforce, they, they represent, you know, they're for, they're a huge amount of pe- women working in, uh, in Utah and getting paid n- not enough money and... Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, too, because women are usually a disproportionately high percentage of selecting how household income is divvied up in terms of whether it's groceries or bills or a lot of that stuff actually ends up going to women as the decision makers for the economy, too. So empowering them on both sides of that economic spectrum is key. So, I mean, we can say all we want, you know, God, they can't drive cars in Saudi Arabia. That's terrible. Well, maybe we ought to look at at our own uh, sure. society here and see what's happening but, with women but one of the interesting things about women in Saudi Arabia, they can't drive cars, but they can be fighter pilots in the Saudi Air Force. So oh, that's right. It is true. It is true. There is at least one. Well, I know. Yeah, because we, yeah. Yeah, uh, when I was reading the uh, in-flight magazine on Saudi, and they're like, look, we're featuring women pilots. I think that was really recent. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a pretty would, recent development. Yeah. But there, yeah. Uh, so anyway, let's talk about your piece, and I think that's, that'll be a good uh, place to... Uh, oh, I would like to talk about hula hooping a little, but... Which oh, one do you want to go for? <laughs> oh, can, can I just ask you, uh, well, uh, I saw Balki's uh, hula hoop, uh, and, and she's really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it, you know. I, uh, I tell everyone that she's the Saudi, Saudi hula hooping champion, although I don't know that there is. They're really pro- spreading rumors yeah. about me. <laughs> but but she, you do it in the full, uh, you're covered completely in uh, the full, and again, I don't know what you call it in Saudi. You've told me, but I forgot. Abaya and the niqab, which yeah. is the face veil and the... Uh, like the body, I don't know. So all we can see Breath. is your hands and your feet yes. and maybe your eyes. My eyes. Yeah, and uh, and you hula hoop uh, uh, to music, and it's it's really beautiful. Thank you. Um, I'll talk about this artwork uh, just briefly. So I try I try to be brief. Usually I'm not. Um, so usually I I'm a hula hoop on my, in my free time, and I started hula hooping in 2014, actually July 2014. So it's been like uh, two, two years now, 
three, three years. Uh, so, but then I really found in that movement and in the hula hoop something very powerful uh, in that circular mo- motion. Like it reminds me of the dervish dancing and the tawaf in Mecca. The whirling dervishes. Yeah, there. exactly. And like how the planets rotate. Uh, uh, like and like so basically there's or even the DNA structure, like the rotation of uh, mm. of that. So like, there's something very magical and very spiritual about it. And like it's something that really connects everything in the world. And uh, of course, not to mention the golden ratio, which is like I think the the a ratio that is found in in everything in nature and everything that is around us. Christian, the golden ratio is uh, well, it's a it's a geo, it's a geometry formula that I don't remember, but you see it in things like snail shells, and so it's the it's the growing spiral that grows at a particular it's, rate. It's what I call the like the uh, the the, the the DNA of the architect of the universe mm. is basically like that. If that if he had a DNA or like if a, 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 a handprint, that would be it. And you find it in all these. Mathematically, uh, it's always the same. Yes, exactly. In whatever, whatever, wherever you find it in snail shells or DNA or exactly, whatever. Exactly, or even in people's faces or like or in paintings or whatnot. So it's a very powerful. Um, uh, shape and uh, I feel like also it's all about the spiral or this circular motion and um, that's when I decided to co- like and what it allowed me to do when I'm hula hooping is that I can express myself in this like these boundaries and I can be free of judgment and fear of resistance and like basically I'm, I'm experiencing a state of flow and trance uh, and I really appreciate it, appreciated that on a personal level just because it kind of helped me to transcend sometimes and meditate and like have a different um like a, a higher level of awareness but I was always wondering what what happens if I remove the body from it like what happens when I abstract this uh, this uh, flow or, or this energy and just focus on it mm-hmm. rather than the body that mo- is moving it um and that's when I decided to combine like the what I consider the ultimate representation of womanhood, especially in Saudi Arabia, which is with the, the veil and uh, the abaya, and combine it with a child's toy, which is something very innocent and playful. And um, uh, and I I think the result was a little bit, um, people like to say, shocking. I say it's something that is magical, like something that really shifted my mind, mind immediately. I immediately saw beauty in it. Um, and uh, also a sense of freedom and grace uh, that maybe if a, a, naked, a nude woman was doing it, you would not even see that in, in it just because it's such an abstract uh, form. Uh, and I believe that contrast really is uh, gave the veil a different movement than the, the one that we're used to seeing, whether it's like in the news with mm-hmm. ISIS and everything or like with the Islamophobes, with like being so mm-hmm. fearful of this, like uh, this representation. I feel like like this artwork actually gave it a different movement, a more innocent and playful it's one. It's beautiful. Yes, uh, I, I agree. Like not that mm-hmm. I'm performing it or anything, but just seeing it as an audience member, I, I always al- also find it uh, intriguing. Just technically, is it uh, you? you I, I assume and, uh, that you have uh, uh, done your hula hooping wearing a, a, a pair of shorts and a. Of and, a, and a T-shirt. Yes. Is it easier to do it that way? Of or course. I mean, it is. It must it's, be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it can get dangerous being tangled with all this fabric sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but 
with when I do it with the, wearing the niqab and the abaya, I do it with the intention to really generate energy and generate movement rather than just doing tricks for the sake of it. So, um, yeah, I sometimes forget the cloth is a barrier for me mm-hmm. or like something that is making it harder for me, and I just flow with it as well. It becomes part of me, which is very ironic just because also like that's that's what I could say about Saudi like and that my Saudi identity that is like it just grows on you it's <laughs> eventually part it's part of me <laughs> so yeah <laughs> not much I can do about it I was born there exactly. <laughs> uh, so that now your piece here at Yomoko what is it called and uh, kind of describe it to people and what you were intending um, it's called in progress and uh, what I, I, I like to call it a living installation basically because uh, I'm using salt and salt water and 100 100% uh, cotton fabric that happens to be black uh, and uh, the fa- fabric is being soaked in the salt water so I'm hoping that like in the next couple of months it's going to be growing and changing over time. That's why I'm calling it a living installation but I feel like uh, my purpose when I wanted to create this artwork was to even when I came to Salt Lake uh, at first was to find to try to find the commonalities and similarities between Saudi and Utah and uh, in specific uh, the uh, Islamic faith and the Mormon one. Uh, And I found that, um, uh, for example, in... uh, in um, Mormonism, uh, there is an endowment, uh, endowment ceremony where basically the veil is being used and the veil rep- represents in this uh, context the veil between God and man. Uh, and um, it's, of course, a, I, I believe a, a man-created veil like or a, a boundary that we're, we're placing between uh, these two entities. Uh, but for, for me, as a, a Saudi woman, the veil has a different, completely different meaning for me. It's something that is particular to women, and, and it has a specific color and a shape and a form, uh, and it's rep- and also representation. And usually, this representation is about privacy, protection, and purity. And that made me really intrigued about like the idea of privacy and how these two cultures really have this um, this need for privacy, uh, and uh, like it's almost obsessive to an extent. And there's a, also, I thought it's interesting. There's a connection between the, the two countries via salt. Yes, and for me that was the driving force of it. One, because I find salt to be a very magical material that I really wanted to work with. Uh, but it's because mostly like in, for example, in um, the Mormon pioneers when they moved to the Salt Lake Valley, uh, they found it to be a very harsh environment that is not very habitable and they, they were not even sure if they can survive there. But they were able to overcome this harshness and create so much like a, a beautiful and flourishing city. And um, uh, in Saudi Arabia, um, soul domes, when they're usually found, uh, it indicates an invisible power underneath, which is basically the resources of like the natural resources, such as gas or the uh, or oil. And it's like uh, also speaking about the the process of time and development and progress. Uh, But then the salt made me ask a question, which is um, for 
for uh, for for us to be like for anything that is a, like a living thing in this world it's uh, salt is a very essential mineral uh, for life but then too much of too much salt uh, can kill us uh, so it was also a question about balance like are we finding this balance and i wanted people to experience the space and this artwork and ask themselves these questions um, and i find it very poetic that the we as human beings we carry the memory of the ocean with us, we carry the memory of our evolution and our sweat and tears, for example, it's the same composition of the salt water. And um, I find that also like speaking of the, the journey of the two cultures and these really harsh environments that they were able to overcome and survive and even flourish in. Um, so yeah, I feel like it's a piece that really I want people to really contemplate uh, and yeah, you, uh, uh, you can see that Balkis al-Rashid uh, gives a, a lot of thought to, to what she's doing and, and she, uh, when she puts together something like this. And, she, and you know more probably about uh, Mormon culture and Mormon pioneer history than uh, I, I certainly than I know about. I uh, realize that actually. Saudi, <laughs> I'm realizing that yeah, I'm 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 becoming like a master of uh, mm-hmm. uh, Mormon history and salt. Yeah, David, yeah, I assume you've gone over to. It's very close to here. You've gone to the temple, uh, LDS temple grounds. Daily. And, you know, you, yeah, it's it's very it's beautiful over it there. Is, and, it's and very it, interesting as well. And have you had the sister missionaries uh, talk to you? And, of course. Yeah. And I've been given uh, the beautiful Book of Mormon. Oh, yeah? yeah. Well, I hope but, you enjoy it. Uh, yeah, still going through it. <laughs> uh, there's so much more we could uh, get to. Uh, uh, Balkis uh, al-Rashid, uh, very uh, uh, interesting art that you will see uh, on her website. If you want to see her hula hooping, there are YouTube videos of her doing it in various locations in the world. Um, it's uh, beautiful stuff. And the uh, all the and the and the art exhibit itself is is quite remarkable and um i think uh, yumoka christian is just this may be the uh, may the one of the best ever I, Thank it's, you, sir. it's really good i mean it's Thank you. um this is a great place to come by the way yumoka you you must if you have not uh check it out U- utah museum of contemporary art um this is the place I'm, for oh i get it for very, contemporary art. yeah very good um we're 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 out of time i just want to thank you for uh, being here and thank you for having me and thank, thank you. you christian yeah thank you very much i hope you got i hope you stick around for a while i hope so too if not i hope to see you i come back to salt lake and see you again yeah, yeah. you can come with me to saudi on my next trip how's that sound i'd come, love come, to though. go come. i would love to go <laughs> I, uh, I yeah, I just think it would be. Good. Are there places Westerners can drink in in Saudi? In the American yeah. Embassy. Oh, is that it? Uh, Cancelled that. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's it. N- no place that we can talk about on the uh, yeah. annual radio. <laughs> there's always there's always some place in the world. Uh, so thank you very much. That's it for another edition of the uh, Let's Go Eat Show. Uh, I'm Bill Allred. Thanks, Dylan, for producing the show. And. Uh, it, are we okay? We're good. We're good. Okay. Yeah, we're good. We're good. You've heard that uh, that's a place where I you can I don't know. Go. I'm in Saudi. I just stay home. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's it. Uh, remember, now you'll, you'll like my sign-off then. Uh, if you're pouring drinks, always make mine a double. Broadway Media Podcast Network.